Well, good morning. It feels like, you know, one of those Sundays where we arrive and there's just kind of a sigh. We made it. It's been a, a challenging week with the news, with the weather, with circumstances all around us. And it's good that we could just find a place where we come for refuge. And so it's okay this morning as we begin just to kind of let out that holy sigh. Say, Thank you, Lord. We made it. And it's good for us to be with God's people this morning in his house. And I'm so thankful for the opportunity that I'm given week by week to just sit under the authority of God's word and, and then to present it to you on Sunday, what I've had the opportunity to learn and study. And we get uh, news events during the week that just change how we see things. And our family was hit by something very hard this week. I won't go into the details, but it's one of those calls that you never want to get. And when you get it, your outlook changes immediately. And so it's good for us to be in a word that doesn't change, on a rock that doesn't move, and an ark of safety that is forever secure. As I was preparing this week, I came across a study by a group called safehome.org. And they did a study in the year 2021 about the fears and anxieties and worries that Americans are facing. And one of the conclusions that they came to is that 45% of those who surveyed said they were experiencing more fear and anxiety than the previous year. And that's not to say the rest were not experiencing fear. Just 45% admitted to experiencing more than the previous year. 39% say that they lose sleep at least once a week over some fear or anxiety. In this study, they measured 41 different issues dealing with health and relationships and finances and, and other issues, and there were over 2,000 participants who answered these questions. Their top five fears were a loved one dying, a loved one getting ill, mass shootings, not having enough money for retirement, and terrorism. Other top fears included things like getting a terminal illness, high medical bills, or social unrest. And the news media and marketing firms seek to capitalize on these fears and to profit off the worries and anxieties of Americans. Just think of the number of products that are offered that promise to protect your family from the loss of property or the promoting of personal security or financial security or promising health and treatments to get you well or access to food and water in times of downturn. It turns out that fear is a big business, a lucrative way to make money. And while certainly there is a role for wisdom, for proper planning, for prudence when it comes to the management of what God has given us, we need to face the reality that ultimately our fears are actually a lack of faith in God. If God is truly in control, and we believe at least on our lips that he is, and if he is truly good and all-powerful and all-kind, as we have sang even in our songs this morning, then we who claim the name of Christ do well to focus at each moment in our lives, not on the problems and fears, though they are there, but on our God who is capable to meet us in every need, 
and he promises to be with us at all times. In our time in the Gospel of Matthew this morning, we arrive in the middle of chapter 8. And beginning in verse 23, Matthew is going to group together another set of miracles. You recall a few weeks ago, he said as we enter into chapters 8 and 9, he would group together three sets of three miracles and tucking an extra one in. And then in between, there would be a challenge to discipleship. Now we're going to look at two of those miracles in this next set of three this morning. And in each case, there is amazement at what Jesus has done. And then a question, at least in one occasion, of who his true identity is. As we look at the reactions of those who observe the miracles, it poses a, challenges, a challenge to us today. How do we react in the midst of our fears? Are we turning to the Lord? And then what do we do if we see him respond? Well, both of the miracles that we're going to look at today take place around the Sea of Galilee with an interesting interplay possibly between the forces of nature and the forces of evil, both of which are seen as being in opposition to the Lord. And so, as usual, we need the Lord to open our eyes to see, open our ears to hear, open our hearts to receive, open our minds to believe, open our wills to act upon what he will show us. And so we will read this morning from Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 to 34, and I invite you to stand in honor of God and the reading of his word. And the truthful and holy word of God says, And when he, Jesus, got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Let us pray. Father, at the reading of your word, we are reminded that it is true. We're reminded that it is useful. We're reminded that it is our authority. And so this morning we bow before your authority and your word, and we ask you to teach us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. As you take out your sermon outline, you will notice that there are two main points in our sermon today with some sub-points underneath. As we arrive at our first point, we see it's Jesus' calming presence. 
Jesus' calming presence. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Now, as we saw last week, Jesus was trying to get the disciples away from the crowds, get them into the boat so he can take them to the other side. And, and while he's trying to arrange a boat and arrange to get them to the boat, these two men come who approach him with questions. And he gives them a tough lesson on the real cost of discipleship. And finally, he's able to bring these conversations to an end, gets into the boat, and the disciples follow him. It's a good example. Jesus is in charge. He leads us to the boat. Let's get into the boat. The disciples mentioned here are those who are truly following Jesus, not as we saw last week, those who are followers in name only, but who really are not following Jesus. You know, in the 1980s, when the sea level was at a low point, a boat was discovered sticking out of the sands of the Sea of Galilee. Archaeologists were able to excavate the boat, which was largely intact, and it was almost a full size, according to what we would have known from the first century. And this boat, in fact, dates to the first century and was a common fishing boat for that era. It was about 26 feet long, 8 feet wide, enough to accommodate a dozen or so men. It even had enough space in the stern for a person to lie down and sleep when he was not on duty. Discoverers named it the Jesus Boat, and it is on display at a famous boat museum in Kibbutz Ginnasor in Israel. Now, it's impossible to know whether this is the actual boat that's referred to here in Matthew 8, but it shows that the gospel writers were extremely accurate in how they recorded the accounts of Jesus' life. We never need to fear anything that the Bible explains to us because ultimately it will, it will be confirmed. We know it's already true. It'll just take a while for man to catch up in his knowledge. The Sea of Galilee itself is about 17 miles long and 8 miles wide, and it sits at 700 feet below sea level. It's surrounded by hills that rise several hundred feet above the surface of the water, but there are also flat plains kind of interspersed there as well, and these warm and cool winds rush down from the mountains, rush over from the Mediterranean Sea, and they often crash down through the gullies out over the storm. And as these warm fronts and cold fronts collide, it very quickly can cause a great storm. Storms that develop quickly with wild waves, whipping white foam, making it very dangerous for any boats to be out on the water. And even today, when storms are forecasted, and they usually appear very quickly, all boats are required to be securely tied down and not allowed to be out on the lake until the storm has passed. So all that by way of just historical background to give us a picture that our God is a God of history, that whatever he says is his story, and knowing that there was a boat just like we have described here, and what the conditions would be, we can get past the historical information and into our text, where you see there is panic and peace. And behold, there was a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the sea by the waves, but he was asleep. As we've said, it's very common for the Sea of Galilee to see these sudden storms, but this one was of such a nature that it caused waves to swamp the boat, meaning it's pouring over the side and threatening to kidnap them, not kidnap them, capsize them. You, you paying attention this morning? <laughs> capsize them. Now, the word here for storm is the word seismos in Greek. It's where we get the word seismic in English. And usually it's used to refer to earthquakes, but here it refers to the waves, which gives you an idea of the magnitude of the storm. And it's 
also including the word great, to show that this was something that was of unusual strength. Because some of these disciples, perhaps as many as four of them, were experienced fishermen. They knew the lake. They knew its conditions. Perhaps they had gone back and forth across this lake already many times in their lives. They certainly wouldn't get into a boat under dangerous conditions. They certainly wouldn't get into a boat that was not able to handle the conditions. And yet here we find them petrified. So in the midst of this sermon, or this storm, Jesus is asleep. And being an itinerant preacher, as we saw last week, where he would move from town to town, he said, I have no place to lay my head. He was depending upon the, the goodwill of people around him to take care of him. He's moving around. He has a heavy schedule, as we've already seen, of teaching and preaching and healing. And so he would be physically tired. Jesus was, after all, truly man. He needed to eat. He needed to sleep. He needed friendship. He would be physically tired from the demands of his ministry. But I think also he is demonstrating trust in the Father in all circumstances. Because as a man, he had to live a perfectly righteous life, which means trusting God perfectly at every point in his life. And so here he is trusting the Father and setting an example for the disciples to follow. But would they? And they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. Now, this would not be the first time in the scriptures that the people of God would be in the midst of storms and they would accuse God of being asleep. In Proverbs 35, we see the psalmist cry out, You have seen, O Lord, be not silent, O Lord, be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God and my Lord. Or Psalm 44, which says, Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our afflictions and oppression? It might appear at times to us at least that God seems to be asleep when we are in trouble. Where is he? He's on a different time clock than we are. That's the problem. We want him to operate according to our timepiece, but he has his own time schedule. So even when it appears to us that he is asleep, most assuredly he is not. The disciples, fearful as they are, and this is a very dangerous situation, they go to Jesus and say, Lord, save us, we are perishing. It's a marvelous translation of the original language, which is actually just three words. Lord, save, we perish. Not a bad prayer when you're in trouble. Just go to the Lord and say, Lord, save, we perish. The word for perishing here actually is the passive form of the word to destroy. So it gives you an idea of the magnitude of the challenge that they are facing it's as if they're saying, Lord, we're about to die, and here you are asleep, save us. They had enough faith to call on Jesus when they were in trouble, but they didn't seem to have enough faith to trust him to begin with. They're still learning about who he is, what he can do, and that will become clear in the reaction to what has happened. My friends, true faith is being grounded in the Lord as a way of life, spending time with the Lord day by day in his word, in worship, in fellowship, memorizing his word so that when we face trial, our first reaction is not fear and panic. Our first reaction is, Lord, I turn to you. Now, there are images in this story that are similar to what we see in the life of the prophet Jonah. There was a storm that threatened everyone on board, and we find the main character asleep. And the others on the ship come to Jonah, and they say, are you sleeping? Wake up. We're perishing. Call out to your God. 
Of course, here we have Jesus. And as we'll see later in Matthew, but as we get a glimpse now, one greater than Jonah is here. Jonah was the cause of the storm. Jesus will be the calm of the storm. And that will make all the difference. But first he offers a double rebuke. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? I find it interesting that the wind is whipping around, the waves are high, the foam is strong, the ship is being pushed back and forth, but Jesus talks to the disciples first before he talks to the weather. Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? It's a good question. Had they not seen Jesus heal people already? Had they not seen Jesus cast demons out of people already? Had they not heard about his powerful teaching already? Yet here they are, scared to death. And we get an idea of the sting behind the rebuke when the word for afraid here is often translated as cowardly. Why are you acting like cowards in the midst of this storm? He chastises them for their lack of faith because he knows that they need to grow in who he is and they're not, they don't yet understand who he is. And I wonder how often that's true of us. We get in the midst of a challenge and we act as if somehow the Lord doesn't really exist or somehow he's not really interested or somehow he's asleep. I hope that it wouldn't be our description that we're people of little faith. Why are you afraid, oh, you of little faith, Jesus said. This is the second time that he has used this expression. And both times he's talking to believers. They have genuine faith, but it's limited. It's immature. It needs to grow. And, of course, he wants them to grow in their faith in him with an understanding of who he is and what he can do. He's the Lord of life, but in their presence, in his presence, they're afraid of dying. He was with them, but they're, exam they're exemplifying fear. You know, as I con was continuing in my preparation for this week and in studying different surveys, I think we would all agree that over the past few years, fear has been the controlling emotion and decision maker for many people. Fear of an unknown disease, fear of what may come, and in recent months, as the stock market goes up and down, fear of what's going to happen to our investments. As we turn on the news and see things happening on the fringes of our culture, fear of, uh, is it going to spiral out of control? People are controlled by fear today in so many ways, and they make decisions based on fear, which often end up being wrong decisions. And so the question that we need to ask ourselves today, where are we on the fear meter? On a scale from 1 to 10, where 1, we're completely trusting in the Lord, and 10, we're quivering in the midst of the storms. Where are we on the fear meter? Are we walking in the way of faith or in the way of fear? Why are you afraid, Jesus asks. Here I am. You did well to wake me, but the Father is still in control. If I'm at peace in the storm, you can be at peace because, behold, I am with you. He's already healed. He's already delivered. He's cast out demons. He was with them. And so the challenge that these disciples had at, at that point, in the words of one commentator, was the most critical concern that Jesus faced with his disciples 
was not potential persecutions or disasters. It was the quality of their faith. Did they trust in him as the Lord of life? So he rose and rebuked the winds and the, the sea, and there was a great calm. We've seen that in a measure he's rebuked the disciples for their lack of faith. Notice the word now, rebuked the winds and the waves, the winds and the sea. It's actually the same word that is used in the Gospel of Matthew for addressing spiritual forces. Is Jesus hinting that there's, a, there's an interplay often between the natural and the spiritual world? Certainly in the passage just previous, earlier in, Ma in Matthew, where it says he healed their diseases and cast out their demons, they're mentioned side by side. And the passage that comes right after this, we're dealing with demoniacs, where men are so under the control of evil that it disfigures them, it makes them sick, it makes them somehow subhuman. Whatever it might be, we know that Jesus is in control over all of it. And even if there are spiritual forces that are involved at times in what happens in the world, God is still in control. Martin Luther, as he was struggling with the church of his day and trying to bring reformation and bring them back to the gospel, recognized the reality of spiritual warfare and the battle for truth. And he talked about the battles that we may have against the devil, against his evil forces. And then he concludes with this, that the devil is still God's devil. He's a created being under God's control. And God is using even this created being for his ultimate purposes. Jesus has authority over nature as we've seen so far. He has authority over illness. He has authority over evil spirits. But again, where are we on that fear meter? And where are we in our trust meter in our Lord Jesus Christ? The reality, my friends, is fears will come in this life. They will. We're fallen. We're weak. We're in a sinful world. Things spiral out of control all around us. There are evildoers that intend harm. We're, we're sinful and stupid at times in our own decisions, and so we bring problems upon ourselves. Fears will come. But when we get to those fears, we should look to the Lord because he puts in perspective all that can come. The peace of Jesus is not always the absence of trouble, but it is the confidence that he is here with us in the midst of those troubles. But how will the disciples respond? Who is this man? And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? After he's dealt with the apostles, or the, dealt with the disciples, he stands, he gives a word, and there's a great calm. Nature immediately obeys its master. The waves calm, the winds stop, the foam subsides, the rain stops falling. The, this violent lake becomes a placid calm. Reflecting the power of Jesus over all that he has created. In the Old Testament, it is God who is seen as the one who controls the sea and the weather. Psalm 89 says, O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. We're reminded in the story of Jonah, chapters 1 and 2, that God controls the storms upon the sea. And Psalm 107, which I recommend you read later, in some ways reads almost like a commentary of what's happening here in Matthew chapter 8. 
with a word, the universe itself was created. And with a word, the one through whom all things were created, Jesus Christ, with a word, calms the winds, calms the seas, calms the waves. Jesus is the master of the seas. And the disciples marvel at him. They're shaken to the core of their being. Who can do this? Who can calm these storms? What sort of man is this? Now, we who have had the privilege of, of studying through the first several chapters of Matthew, we can recall some things to remind us what sort of man this is. He was a man born of a virgin, as promised by God. He was called Emmanuel, God is with us. He said, I've come to be the Savior for the sins of my people. He shows us in the wilderness that he is the victor over all temptation and evil and the devil. But these disciples, they don't have the privilege of 2,000 years of a look across time. They don't yet fully know who this Jesus is. They understand that he has a certain power over nature, but they don't fully understand. They're amazed. They know they're in the presence of greatness, but they're struggling to figure out what it all means. They wondered who he is. But it's not enough. As Charles Spurgeon said, it is well that they wondered. It would have been better had they adored. We see all throughout the Gospel of Matthew that people are amazed at Jesus. They're amazed at his power, amazed at his words, amazed at what he's done, amazed at what he can accomplish, and many of them walk away. So this miracle becomes a test of discipleship. What sort of man is this? Well, Jesus is in a class by himself. He alone is the God-man, truly God and truly man. He has no peer. He has no comparison. So in facing challenges, my friends, our first responsibility is not to focus on the challenges, but to focus on the powerful Savior who called us, who loved us, and who said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. We do well to emulate the disciples who called him Lord, but we should go beyond that and recognize what it means to be Lord. Believe him, obey him, trust him, follow him. He is Lord over all the seas. Robert Louis Stevenson tells of a storm that caught a vessel off a rocky coast and threatened to drive it and its passengers to destruction. And in the midst of the terror, one daring man, contrary to orders, went up to the deck made a dangerous passage to the pilot house and saw the man at the steer, at the, at the helm, lashed fast to his post and holding the wheel of the ship unwaveringly and inch by inch turning the ship once more back out to sea. The pilot happened to see that a man was watching, turned to him and smiled. Then the daring passenger went below and gave out a note of cheer. I have seen the face of the pilot, and he smiled, all is well. Having a right perspective on who is in charge helps us to understand the situation. Having a right perspective on e eternity and who is ultimately in charge empowers us to respond to those temporal things that we deal with. We should be overwhelmed being in the presence of the Lord, but not be overwhelmed by the things that happen in this life because we can take 
confident in the providence of God. God may not always calm the storms of our lives, but he promises something better, to be with us. To be with us. And that, my friends, knowing that Jesus is with us, even in the storms of life, is comfort for the one who discovers a lump in her body. Comfort for the one who loses his job because of a downturn. Comfort when a child takes his own life. And comfort when a loved one suddenly dies from accident or illness. Even if the storm remains, Jesus can calm the child with his divine smile. And when we see his smile, we can know that all is well. He is in charge. He is the calming presence. Secondly, we see Jesus' casting power. Jesus' casting power. Two six-year-olds struggled with the problem of understanding the existence of the devil. And one said, oh, no, there isn't any devil. And the other one said, what do you mean there isn't a devil? It talks about him all the way through the Bible. And the first one replied, well, you know that's not true. It's just like Santa Claus. The devil turns out to be your dad. <laughs> There's a lot of confusion about the devil, about who he is. And Christians can have an unhealthy preoccupation with the devil, or Christians can deny that he even exists. Both are to be avoided. The Bible clearly speaks of the devil's existence and that he is a danger, but he is creative and under the control of Jesus. And that's comfort for us as we read the next story. It's comfort for us as we go through life because even the demons believed. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, which was a large, I'm just going to stop there. The Gadarenes was a large region in the Decapolis. You remember last week I said that was on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, this region of ten major cities. And there's a region called Gadara that moves up to the edge of the Sea of Galilee. In fact, there's a village today in, in Jordan called Umkais, which I think is where the events took place mentioned here in Matthew 8. They arrived to the other side, and two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. So when Jesus and his disciples finally get to the other side, they've come through the storm. They get to the other side, and now they're met by two men who are completely under demonic control. And this will be the first of five specific acts of exorcism in the Gospel of Matthew. They're not allowing anyone to pass by. They're controlling the area. And we learn from the accounts in, in the gospel according to Luke and the gospel according to Mark that these men had been chained and they could not be controlled. They would break the chains. That they're unclothed, running around in tombs, meaning they're unclean. That they're controlled by as many as a legion of demons, which at least in Roman numbers was 6,000. They're called fierce, meaning they're dangerously violent. They're unclean. All of the things of common grace that serve to control evil and control human dignity have been stripped away for these men. And they come to chase Jesus away. 
like they've chased everyone away that's come by them, but they immediately realize that they're in the presence of someone stronger than they. And behold, they cry out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? It's interesting that one of the first confessions of faith that we have in the scriptures is on the lips of demons, correctly pointing to the sonship of Jesus. Demons have good theology, they're just wicked and evil and destined for judgment. They know that Jesus is not like any other man. The disciples ask, what manner of man is this? And we see that even on the lips of demons, they cry out, he is the son of God. The word that is used for crying out means that they shudder because they know they're in the presence of a superior power. It's why we see affirmed in the letter written by James that even the demons believe in God, but they shudder in fear. And they ask Jesus, have you come to torment us before the time? Now, it's interesting that in the Greek, there's two words for time. And this is important for us to understand because it helps us to understand what does time mean in this case. There's the word chronos, where we get the word chronology. And we know what that is, one event after the other, one day after another, a sequence of events. But the word that is used here is kairos. And kairos means at the appropriate time or at the meaningful time. So... The demons say, have you come to torment us before Kairos, before that appointed time? Before their time will come because they know their time is short, their doom is sure. They know that they will be cast into the lake of fire. They know that they will experience God's judgment forever because of their rebellion against him. And so they say, have you come to torment us? We, we might not tend to think of God as one who torments, but here the demons do. They recognize that being banished from his holy presence forever under his righteous wrath is to be tormented. They know that they will be cast into that lake of fire. But for reasons known only to God, they're still allowed to operate today. They're still allowed to go about trying to steal and kill and destroy. But even in all of that, they ultimately serve the purposes of God. Nothing is outside of God's control. God will be vindicated. And in his judgment against all evil and evildoers, our shout of joy and victory will resonate down through the corridors of eternity. That God has defeated all of his enemies. When the Lord Jesus Christ came to earth, he began to push back and reverse and undo all the damage that sin had brought in. And it's a foretaste of that ultimate victory that will destroy all evil once and for all one day. God has appointed a day. That, that appropriate time, these demons know it. So we see next of swine and seas. Now a herd of pigs, a herd of many pigs, was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying... If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. When the time comes, these minions of evil will be cast away into eternal punishment. And notice here that the demons are not asking for mercy. They're asking for a delay in their judgment. And so they make reference to some pigs that are feeding some distance away. This tells us that we're in a Gentile area where it was commonly practice that they would raise pigs and notice now to what level these demons recognize they're in the presence of a superior power they beg 
Jesus. If you cast this out. Not will you. But if you cast this out now, don't send us to the eternal abyss. But send us away into these pigs. They recognize the authority and the power and the holiness of God. And they despise Jesus. And they fight against everything of Jesus. And each one who has the name of Jesus on his forehead and the spirit of God in his heart will have a target on his back by these demons who will try to destroy what we want to do for the glory of God. But ultimately, my friends, they're helpless. Because we have the living spirit of God within us, sealed in his spirit. Jesus Christ is walking with us. He has bought us. And he will protect us. And so in their, as they beg Jesus saying, don't throw us into the fire yet. Throw us into, this, into these pigs. And what does Jesus say? Go. So they came and went into the pigs. And you can read the story. They rushed down the hill into the, into the lake, into the sea. And they're, they're, they're destroyed. Notice that Jesus did this with a word. With his divine authority, he cast them all out. This symbolizes he cast them out of pigs now, but he will cast them into the eternal fire later. With one word. This is the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. With one word, he sent demons into the pigs who were at a distance. With one word, he healed the servant of a centurion who was also at a distance. With one word, he exercises his authority. There's no, there's no chanting. There's no formula. There's no rituals. There's just a word. And they came out immediately and into the pigs. Now, this would have been a very chaotic scene. Pigs are not known for being docile and peaceful animals. When they get agitated, it can turn sour very quickly. And that's what happens here. We can't even begin to understand. We can imagine, but it even surpasses what we can imagine as they suddenly are agitated and moving about, thrashing about, rush down the banks into the seas and drown. And what can only be described as a display of power and judgment. And even in their wailings, even in their beggings, even in their pleadings, we hear them recognizing that Jesus is powerful. That Jesus is in control over all. So what would your response be? This is admittedly a very unusual event. Well, their response was, away with this man. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Of course they flee into the city. This, this is an amazing event. They've got to run and tell people, but they could not truly understand what was going on. How do you explain fully what has happened? How these men who've been known for years of being deranged, they cut themselves on stones, their faces are disfigured, they have strength beyond what seems normal, suddenly clothed. Healed, seated, and in their right minds. How do you explain that? And so the whole city came out. And it says when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. This, of course, would have been exciting news or interesting news. Who, who was behind this? What manner of man is this? Perhaps... Because of their spiritual background, they saw Jesus as just some sort of magician or miracle worker. 
And all they saw was if he was able to destroy these pigs, what could he do to them? And so they send him away. And the tragedy is that he was the very one who could heal them, forgive them, set them free. But they were uncomfortable being in his presence. They didn't know who he was. And so they sent him away. Better off sending him back among the Jews away from us. As one commentator looked at it, he said, they preferred pigs to cursing swine to the Savior. Now, some critics at this point use this story and they accuse Jesus of doing something wrong. They say he ruined the livelihood of this village through the destruction of these pigs. Or they say he showed disrespect for these animals. But it's good to remind ourselves of who's involved here. It's not the ethicists and philosophers of the 20th and 21st century who think they have a higher view and understanding of truth. This is the Lord himself. The one who sees the beginning from the end. The one who came to save a rebellious people. The one who created all things for his glory. The one who values the salvation and redemption of those created in his image. And he cares for them more than he cares for just this flock of pigs. He said, I've come to save my people from their sins. I didn't come to save swine. Now, we take the whole counsel of God and we recognize that God values the animals that he has created. And they are to give him glory and they have a purpose for which they are to serve for his purposes. But his glory is always the highest purpose. And how he chooses to use anything in his creation is ultimately for his good, his glory, according to his plan. And that becomes a challenge to us today. Because in our hearts, we're very good at quick at building up idols that we want to serve, things that we want to do, passions we want to run after, things that we think are important. Are we willing to devalue those things so that we will value more highly the things of God? In his book, How to Reach Secular People, a pastor is quoted as saying, almost everyone has a problem, is a problem, or lives with a problem. And Jesus is the solution to all of our problems, whatever the cause might be. It would be an interesting study. We, I'm not sure how we would even possibly trace it, but how did these men end up in that state? What happened in their life patterns that led them to this state of being completely given over to demons? We don't know. What we do know is that it's never okay to sin. What we do know is there is no master except Jesus who is acceptable. And we know that we are sinners by nature and sinners by choice. And we're called to avoid evil. As we look at these two stories this morning, we see that Jesus is our calming presence and he has casting power over all. Jesus is the bondage breaker. He's the snake slayer. He's the devil defeater. He's the savior from sin. And his compassion for sinners shines through in this story, as does his control over the spirit world and over nature itself. And so in these two difficult stories, Jesus has taken his disciples gone across the sea to the other side. It seems the original intent was to pull them away and to teach them. Not sure how much teaching actually got done. We'll have to explore that further in our next passage. 
But think of the education that has taken place for these disciples. They've now seen that Jesus does have control over nature, control over all spiritual forces, and they're starting to learn what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to walk under his authority, and the fact that there will be spiritual opposition even as we obey God. And so this will prepare them then for what is yet to come in Matthew. Now next week as we get to the third in this three-part series of miracles, we'll see again that Jesus will express his authority, and this time over sin and the ability to forgive sin. And that'll be a great lesson for us to dive into in light of what we have seen today. But what are some things that we can learn and reflect on throughout this week from what we have seen? Jesus was at rest during the storm. Therefore, we can be at rest in him in the midst of the storm. He's in control. He's not flustered by breaking news, a sudden change of events, circumstances that don't quite go according to plan. He's in control, and we can be at rest in him and his control. Because Jesus has control over nature, we're not fret. You know, <laughs> we have a lot of discussions about weather. We have a lot of discussions about conditions. Do we have a discussion about the one who's actually in control of it all? Let's encourage one another to keep looking to him in the midst of the challenges. That with a word, if he wills, it can change. Thirdly, because even the winds and the waves obey Jesus, we will obey him in all areas of our lives. Nature obeyed immediately. The spirits obeyed immediately. How much more should we who are created in his image and redeemed for his purposes, when we hear his word, we say, yes, Lord. Your servant is listening. Because Jesus controls the timing of the judgment of all, even demons, we can stand strong in him and in his authority. He will win. The victory is secure. It is ultimate. There's just a little cleanup operation that has to take place between now and then. And we can stand firm in him. Because Jesus has all authority and power, we can stand in awe of him. And worship him as our Lord. I want to serve a God who overwhelms me. I don't want to serve a God that I can understand and control and manipulate and explain in a four-part sermon. I want to stand in his presence and let him be God in all of his glory and power. And then worship him as he truly deserves to be worshipped. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you're in control. We're thankful that... The struggles that we have in this life, as you have allowed them, you are in control of them and you're beckoning us to put our trust in you. And I thank you for that. I thank you for the assurance that we have of your presence being with us. Father, as, as we contemplate the lessons for this next week, what we've heard today, we need your Holy Spirit to be teaching us and refining us and helping us and correcting us as only you can. And we humble ourselves now before that correction and that teaching and that guidance. And say, yes, Lord, your will, not mine. Mold in me more and more that I would become like Jesus Christ. And so to that end, we pray. Because in answer to the question, what manner of man is this? 
we want to cry out, He is our God, our King, and our Savior. We pray in Jesus' name.